So I, I recently had to uh, attend a funeral uh, for, for someone who lived a really extraordinary life. And, and uh, if I'm honest, I don't, I don't love, I don't look forward to funerals. Probably no one does. But uh, whether I'm guiding people through one or I'm being guided through one, it's hard to come face to face with loss and things not being right in the world. And maybe this is the place where you experience that more than anything else, that things are just... I don't know, something's not right about, about the world. But they are important parts of, of, of therapy. They can be cathartic. And, and so it's important that, that, we, that we attend these types of things when, when asked to. But every once in a while, there's, a, there's a, a funeral service that actually lives up to the moniker, a celebration of life. Uh, and, and the one that I went to was, was that. It really was a celebration of life, a life fully and well lived. The, the funeral was for... Uh, uh, in honor of my neighbor, uh, Mrs. Houck. And Mr. and Mrs. Houck lived across the street from us in, in the first house we purchased here in Florida that we actually just moved out of the neighborhood. Uh, and they lived right across the street. So, you know, when I'd come out of my front door, I would see their, their white house with blue columns and blue door and blue shingles, which I don't even know you could get those. Uh, they probably discontinued them in 1985, right after they bought it, uh, which was actually the last time the house had been painted. So uh, it was still bright blue. Uh, I don't know how, that's like really good paint. But, um, so that was right across the street, and, uh, and they were our neighbors. And there was something really comforting about having an elderly couple across the street or in our neighborhood. I'm not exactly sure what that was all about, their psychology for us, but we loved having an, an elderly couple across the street. And, and uh, at, this, at this memorial service, I got to hear about her life, some of the things that I didn't necessarily know or only had small glimpses of. Uh, Mr. Houck was in the military. He was an Air Force Guy and so traveled around uh, the world, but finally landed in Florida. And when they did, they dedicated themselves to actually uh, bringing the world into their home. And they actually helped 300 foreign exchange students have an experience of going to school here in the U.S., which was which was crazy. One flew in from Germany uh, for the for the memorial service just to stand up and say, uh, "I'm here, and I'm so thankful because uh, Mrs. Hauk showed people the best of America." I love it. I mean, it's incredible. The other thing that I loved about them, the pastor stood up of their church and, and talked about how they had this multiple decade long ministry with Operation Christmas Child, the shoe boxes. If you ever heard of the shoe boxes, they're putting together a shoe box that then gets shipped off to uh, somewhere in the developing world for, for an impoverished child so that they can have a Christmas present so that they know they're loved. She, she led this ministry and they would, they would uh, right around Christmas time, you'd see their car out front and it would just be full, like you couldn't even, I don't know how they even drove it because it would just be full of boxes. They'd go around picking them up and, and uh, Mrs. Hogg was very very meticulous in, in how the boxes were put together because she really wanted kids to know that they mattered, that they mattered. And so she'd go through the boxes and like fix the, the ones that weren't good enough, I guess. Uh, so they talked about that. And then, um, so the pastor, through tears, he was tears coming down. He looks up and he says, Mrs. Houck, we will continue your ministry here. I just love it. It's incredible. And then one of her daughters got up, and, and a lot of the family had great things to say. But one thing that really stuck with me is one of her daughters said, my mom's legacy was that she loved everyone. Man. It, was, it was awesome. It was a beautiful memorial service. But in all of that, and I wasn't asked to, but if I had been asked to, I would, I would have got up and said, Mrs. Howe simply was, was my neighbor. And not in, not in the spatial sense, though that's true. Her, her white and blue house was across from my house, but, but she was a neighbor in a different sense. When we first moved into the uh, neighborhood, 
they came over and introduced themselves really quickly and said, hi, we're Mr. and Mrs. Houck, and uh, we'd love uh, to, to get to know you guys, and we have a pool in the backyard. You guys don't have a pool. Come over and use our pool anytime you want to. Uh, and I was like, oh, that's nice, creepy old people who want to see me half naked in your backyard. Um, uh, but over time, we got to know them a little bit better, and it got less and less creepy over time. Uh, but we still didn't take them up on it um, until one day uh, they came by. It may have been Mr. Houck. They may have been together. I'm not really sure. But uh, they said, hey, we really would love for you to use the pool. And we said, yeah, yeah, we're, we're meaning to get over there, and thanks, and, and we feel very invited. Uh, but they said, well, here's the thing. Our, our kids are gone. Our grandkids live halfway across the country. We don't swim. But the day that your moving truck pulled up, we saw that you had kids. And so I called the, the pool cleaning company. We hadn't had the pool cleaned in years, but we, we've been cleaning the pool for a year now. The pool's yours. It's not ours. I mean, they were relentless in not letting us feel like outsiders. They were relentless in their pursuit of neighboring us. Every, every holiday, there'd be little bags either on the front door, they'd come bring them over. Mr. Houghton drove this little scooter all around the neighborhood, and so he'd come over up the hill, and like, I was always scared he was going to fall over or something. But, um, but they'd bring these little bags over with like bouncy balls and little treats and like menus from, from restaurants that closed in the late 80s and just kind of weird stuff in there. And there was always these, these presents for, for our kids. Uh, Mrs. Houck was a lot of things, but, but for, for me, most of all, Mrs. Houck was my neighbor. And I really hope people say that about me someday. It begs the question, as we, as we dive into uh, another week talking about serving others, it begs the question, what kind of neighbor are you? Or maybe a different way to ask that is, what type of neighbor would your neighbors say you are? Would you even know their names to ask them? This Nice Serve series on, on serving others is, is kind of couched in this larger season that we're in as a church about uh, mission, the mission of the church, God's mission in the world. And, and there's a lot that could be said about that, but I think it could be distilled down mostly to this, the mission of the church, God's mission in the world, and the mission of God's people is what Jesus said we should spend our hours on. The hours we have, we should squeeze as much of this out of the hours we have as possible. Love God with all we've got and love him so much that you're willing to love your neighbor as yourself. That sums it up. That's what we're to be about. That's what we squeeze out of the hours that we have. That's the mission of the church. And if we join Jesus in that, in loving God and loving him so much that we're willing to love our neighbors, that's how we join him in, in, in repairing what's broken in our world giving a glimpse of this thing that's talked about in the scriptures, this, this word shalom. It's not a word that we use very much, but it's talked about all the time in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. We began to talk about this last week, but if you weren't with us, this idea of shalom, this thing that God is bringing into the world is like this. If I had a thousand threads in my hand, uh, independent threads, and I threw them on the ground, that wouldn't make a fabric. That would just be threads in proximity to each other. What makes a fabric is when I would weave those threads over, under, through, and the more I weave them, the tighter the bond becomes. That's shalom. That's the idea of peace that's talked about in the scriptures. It's not that God created billions of entities in the world and we're all supposed to be lone in being entities. No, we're to be interdependent, interwoven in relationship with each other. That's God's ideal. And when God created the heavens and the earth, it says in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, all the way back at the beginning of the scriptures, he did so in a way that all the moving pieces, and there were a lot of moving pieces, but all those moving pieces worked together in, in harmony 
and in unity and in peace. Think of it this way. It's like a, like a symphony. If you've got all these instruments playing, they're all playing their individual instruments and their individual notes, yet they're making one singular thing. They're making one piece of music. And yet, we see very early in the scriptures when humans moved away from God's plan as though you were in the orchestra and decided to just play your own notes or maybe more appropriately for the analogy, just walk off the stage. When, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, when they turned away from God's plan for their own plan, what happened? They hid from each other. I mean, what better example can you have of a fabric ripping and pulling away from itself? That's what happened at the fall. And maybe, maybe you're here and, um, and, and you don't believe any of this. Maybe, maybe, or maybe you're just trying to figure out if you believe. You don't know if you believe all this Jesus stuff. You're, you're not a follower of Jesus. The only reason you're here is because uh, the person sitting next to you wanted you to come. So you're like, I'll, I'll, I'll come. But you're not really sure about all this. If that's you, I'm so glad that you are here. Please continue to be here and ask as many questions as you need to for as long as you need to. We're so glad that you are here. But even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you don't believe the scriptures, uh, even, if, even if none of this makes any sense to you, I doubt you'll argue with me the idea that all's not right with the world. Things aren't perfect. This kind of resonates, this idea that like, things are pulled apart that should be brought together. We can watch the news. We can hear our own family story. I mean, there's a lot of things we know. It's like, that's oh, just not right with the world. So I think we can all agree that, that things are not all right in the world. But the scriptures tell us that God had a plan, a plan to repair it, to pull everything back together. And you know what's crazy? His plan includes us. That's what Isaiah 58 is talking about. We've been parking in Isaiah 58 for this nice serve series, and we're going to go back to it. We haven't read a large block of Isaiah 58, and so if you turn in your bulletin, you're like, whoa, that's a lot of text. We're going to read a little block of Isaiah 58 because it's important to get the, the kind of full breadth of what Isaiah 58 is about. But essentially, that's it. It's about this idea that God wants to pull things back together, and he wants his people to be a part of it. We're part of his plan to restore things. And so I'm going to warn you, we're going to read this scripture. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in, particularly if you're not familiar with Isaiah or, or how God talks through Isaiah to the people. Um, so here's my encouragement. If you're not familiar with it, just try to latch on to a couple of thoughts, a couple of key words, things that maybe repeat themselves. That's a good way to begin to understand what might be happening in the scriptures. And I'll interject a couple of things along the way, and then we'll unpack it together. So Isaiah 58, again, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to his chosen people, the people that he chose to be part of his repair work. So it starts this way in, in verse 1. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. All right, so this first little part, essentially what's being said here is these were people of worship. They showed up for worship. They prayed. They fasted, which essentially means they set time apart for worship of God. They showed up at church. These are church people. And then they ask God this question, why have we fasted? Again, why have we set time apart to worship you? They say, and you have not seen it, God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? God, if you're good, 
and we believe that you are, and we've been faithful to you, why is everything still a mess? Why is the world not perfect yet? Why is healing taking so long? God replies, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloths and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So God asked them a question. He, he says, is, is that how you sum up worship? To, to be selfish in your motives and to be self-reflective alone and to be self-centered in that reflection? Is that it? Like, is that all that worship is? God says, no, let me paint a fuller picture of what worship is. Verse 6 is, not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cord of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? Then, uh, when you see the naked, to clothe them, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing of fingers and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. That's a lot to take in. Again, especially if you've, if you've never heard it before, but God is saying to his people, He's saying, he's saying you, your, your prayer, your gathering together, your pursuit of holiness, those are all aspects of worship, and they were pursuing all of those things. But he's saying to his people, creating caring societies where needs are met and the vulnerable aren't left out, that's part of worship as well. And likewise, doing, uh, doing away with wrong relationships, undoing all of that and, 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 and pursuing right relationships, healing broken relationships, that's part of worshiping God as well. Verse 7, you get uh, th this, this phrase, provide the poor wanderer with shelter. In the Hebrew, it reads a little bit more like invite the poor wanderer home. Verse 10, you get spend yourself on behalf of the hungry. In the Hebrew, is actually wait on the table of the hungry. Be there for them. Don't just throw them a bone. This is relationship language. That's how things get stored. It's, 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 neighbor, it's neighboring. And the invitation to serve is an invitation not first to pursue a task done, though tasks get done. The invitation to serve, first and foremost, is an invitation to relationship. We see this in a surprising way in, a, in an obscure text, 2 Chronicles 28. Uh, Israel's army has just defeated uh, another nation in battle. Oddly enough, or ironically, it's Judah, which is their brothers and sisters, the divided kingdom. And what was common in the day when you defeat a nation in battle is uh, you, you turn them into slaves. That's how you build your empire. That's how things worked in ancient Mesopotamia. But there's this obscure prophet named uh, Oded who actually goes to the leaders of Israel and says, no, 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 instead of turning them into slaves, here's what I need you to do. This is, this is what God would have you do. Uh, provide food and, and clothing and shelter for those that you've defeated. Why? 
Why do that? No other, other society in ancient Mesopotamia would do that. It was totally countercultural. And think about it. If I have to provide food and shelter and clothing for those that I just defeated, that means less for my family. This doesn't make any sense at all. Why, why would we do that? But so many of the Old Testament laws that governed the people were about outsiders being cared for, be, being protected and loved and invited in like brothers and sisters. Why on earth are we supposed to live that way? It doesn't make any sense save one thing. If it's actually true that all people are image bearers of God, then it actually does make sense because what God is saying here is you care for them, whoever them is, whoever the one in need is, you care for them because they are your family. You don't treat them like family. They are your family. That's part of everything being pulled back together. That's why you care for them. So what's happening in Isaiah 58 is this idea of time set apart for worship is being redefined for God's people in this beautiful, broad, others-focused parameters, this total redefinition of what it means to worship. And that's what worship is. Worship at its core, both then and now, is moving from being self-centered to being God-centered And when you become God-centered, you become other-centered because of who God says other people are. That's the movement of worship. That's what this is all about. So in places in our time, so let's land this in our community, in in our time where we see broken things, where we see uh, the vulnerable and the needy and the hurting members of our own city and our own community and our own neighborhoods, when we see them falling through the webbing, the, the, the cracks, And maybe you've been on that side before. Maybe you've felt like that. Maybe you've felt that sense of like, I'm falling and I don't know if there's anybody here to catch me. Maybe you lost your your, your job at at one point or, or maybe that person that was never supposed to leave, they did. Or maybe a decision you made or somebody else made left you feeling completely isolated and alone and you've got that sense where you're just falling and it's like, I don't know if anybody's gonna catch me. I think this is just gonna go on forever. When that's the reality for people in our neighborhoods, in our lives, The call of God's people is to take the threads of our lives, our our emotions, our time, our resources, our presence, our stuff, and we're to plunge those into the lives of others in need through thousands and thousands of, of, of little but always significant involvements. We see Jesus living this way. In Luke 8, Jesus had to go to the, quote, the, the other side. That's what it says in the scriptures. He had to go to the other side to meet the man who, who, who was actually kicked out of his community. He was living in a tomb. Talk about being left for dead because he, had, he, he was possessed. And so he had to go to the other side. It's, this isn't like a geographic thing. This is the other side means I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to go over to the Gentile side, but I need to move that direction. In Luke 18, Jesus, imagine this huge crowd around, and he asked the blind man, he says, what do you want me to do for you? If there's a huge crowd and and it's loud, he would have had to get really close to that guy. Jesus had to get really close to the disciples to wash their feet. Each of these is an act of relationship, this movement toward people. As his followers, we're, we're to put ourselves in the position to serve others. We're to move toward people or to get near people so that we can invite them in and and help them along. 
That's, that's the direction. We don't sit and wait. And though, man, I love the fact that we're here and that we're gathering. And one of the things I always say is the best thing about this place is those doors out there because those doors were meant to be thrown open so that anybody can come. But sometimes we're the ones that have to go outside of them. Seven and a half years ago, we became a multi-site church. Uh, some of you guys were around for that. And, and in the, the first days, essentially what we said at that point is we can build a bigger building in one place and invite everybody to come, and there's maybe nothing wrong with that. Or what we saw in the scriptures was, was Jesus moving a different way. He actually went to people to help them know they matter to God. So maybe that's what we should do as a church. Maybe we should go into communities and get as close to people as we possibly can. And so we stood up and we presented that idea, and, and on the, that's all we knew at that point. And 38 people were like, I'm in, which those people are crazy. Uh, and if that was one, thank you for being a part like we didn't know what we were doing. I don't know why you trusted us. But um, so 38 people. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is incredible. I can't believe they have that much faith in, in God through this place. And so uh, we set up a first team meeting and, and I got there early and I set up chairs. And um, I remember thinking, OK, there are 38 people, maybe just maybe God will, will like double, double our numbers. And then, and then, gosh, maybe he'll like add a couple. Like, what if 75 people showed up to this meeting? I mean, God can do incredible things through 75 people. If, God, please, if you, could, if you could bless us that way, that would be so amazing. So, uh, so we set up 75 chairs, and 38 people showed up, and then 50, and then 75, and then 100, and then 125, and then 150 ended up coming. That's not when I knew multi-site would work. That's not when I knew this whole idea would work. When I knew this idea of multi-site would work was when those 75, almost in unison, it was almost cerebral, like it, I, no one said anything, but every one of those 75, they stood up and they went and found chairs. And they started setting up chairs for other people and giving their seats away. That's the moment I knew multi-site would work. That's the moment I knew that someday we would be in here doing something like this, worshiping God and trying to figure out what it means to honor him in our community because we were willing when we had the chance not to. When people said, they could have said, I've got my seat. Somebody else will figure it out. They said, I'll give up my comfort for the sake of someone else because I can't imagine someone feeling like an outsider. I can't imagine just looking at that need and going, well, figure it out. That's the heartbeat of this place, and we've been trying to be that type of people ever since that moment. So I'll return to the question that I asked last week. How am I, right? here this morning. How am I supposed to surprise the world and weave things back together? How, how am I supposed to, to join God in repairing the, the world? Well, as the great theologian Dr. Seuss once said, sometimes the questions are complicated, but the answers are simple. Maybe the answer is actually really simple. If you're with us a couple weeks ago, John Parker led off the series and he talked a little bit about where the name Nice Serve came from. I love that he shared that story. That's been something that we've talked about internally for a long time and, and I'm so glad it finally got out. So the guys were in their 20s when they started Summit and they like to play volleyball. And you know like when you serve in volleyball and it's like an ace or a, a nice serve, you say, hey, nice serve. That's where Nice Serve came from. Um, which is a little bit sad, but those guys were in their 20s, and so a little bit of uh, grace on the branding is probably in order. But if you think about it, now they didn't think about it, by the way, but if you think about it, it's actually a little bit profound. I mean, think about it. The serve is the start of how the game gets won. Without the serve, you can't win. Nice serve isn't the end, but we can't have victory unless we start. 
Sometimes the questions are complicated, but the answer is simple. It starts with starting to love your neighbor. It starts with starting. A few years ago, uh, on the Thursday before the Saturday nice serve, the foster family, who's part of here at Waterford, uh, they called up the church and they said, hey, we didn't get a chance to sign up before for whatever reason, and, uh, but we want to be a part of the family-friendly project. We really want to do that. And, and at that point, we said, oh, we don't have the materials, and really, really sorry, this sounds terrible, but like we can't, we can't let you be a part of it because we just don't have a way to facilitate that. And so then they had uh, an option. They could have said, oh, well, I guess, I guess we can't do it. I guess, I guess we can't be a part of it. But then they had another option, and here's the one they chose. They got together as a family, and they brainstormed, okay, well, what can we do uh, to, to serve others? And so they came up with this idea that on Saturday morning when we were here doing our thing, uh, they would put on their nice serve shirts, and they would go to the neighborhood park because they'd been there before, and there was some trash around. They said, let's just go clean the park up. That's how we'll serve. That's, we've noticed this need. We've seen it, so let's do something about it. And that's, that's how they did nice serve. Uh, and then they came over and had lunch, and it was really, really cool. But that, that was it. They came up with how they were going to serve their neighbor. When I heard that story, I mean, it changed everything for me. The reason we're doing nice serve a little differently, where we have these projects going throughout the week, we're still having Saturday, and it's a wonderful event, uh, and, and I hope that you'll be a part of it. But there are these other projects that are happening throughout the week. It's because of the fosters. Like, that's why, because to see them say, you know what, I want to think creatively about what it means to be, uh, to be a neighbor. That's what we need to be about. That's what, that's what God has invited us to be as a people, looking around and seeing how we can be good neighbors, loving God enough that we're willing to love our neighbors. And so we changed NYSERV up a little bit because doing NYSERV the way we've always done NYSERV isn't sacred, but if we look at the scriptures, it seems pretty clear that serving others is. And so this was about all of us being able to do it together. We know we can't all necessarily show up on a specific Saturday, but we all can be a part of a season of intentionally serving others. And, and when we do, remember the promise of Isaiah 58. Let's talk a little bit about what happens when we serve. It says if you are involved in this act of being a good neighbor, this relentless pursuit of not letting people feel like outsiders in your neighborhood, in your city, if you live this way, remember what it says in verse 8, then light will break and healing will quickly appear. This word healing, interestingly enough, is the same word used in Nehemiah when they talked about rebuilding, repairing the wall in Jerusalem. It's that repair work. It's weaving things back together. But look a step deeper into what Isaiah says. He says, if you live this way, your light will shine in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. What Isaiah is saying is the repair work isn't just for those you serve. It's actually for you as well. It isn't just the broken things around you that get put back together. It's the broken things inside you that get put together as well. And so we go serve people in need as people in need. And we look for creative ways to, to care for the people around us. We'll go read books to kids in the inner city. Go mow lawns. Take a friend a meal. Clean a park. Pick up trash at an elementary school. Feed the homeless. All of those things and more. We do all of those things to put ourselves in places where we can repair anything at all that we see that's broken because we need it because we're made more into who we should be as we do, because we need repair too. Isaiah says we get changed as we serve others. 
And so we engage in this process, this church-wide, all-in, everybody-be-a-part-of-it service event called Nice Serve. But we do so not as the saviors. We already have one of those. So we do this following the Savior. Because we need him too. Jesus has this interesting interaction with his disciples in uh, the end of of chapter 8 of Mark and then into chapter 9. He asked them, uh, who do people say that I am? And his disciples come up with all these interesting answers. Some say you're a good teacher. Some say uh, you're, you're a prophet. And then other people, like when Jesus kind of is like, okay, okay, and he's like, people still, you know, he's still looking for the answer. Somebody's like, you're the resurrected Elijah. And I can imagine Jesus going, oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, yeah, you're getting further and further away. So finally he's like, okay, fine, fine. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Savior. And Jesus says, you got it. But then he follows it up with this. He says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. And we might be sitting here today, remember, we've already established that things are not all right with the world. And we may say, Jesus, I hate to second guess you, but I think you got your timeline off. This doesn't look like kingdom of power to me. This looks like a mess. I got stuff going on in my life and people around me have stuff going on and that is even before I turn on the news and see that the whole world's got stuff going on. What's this whole kingdom of power thing? Or maybe he's just being hyperbolic, right? Just, just getting carried away. I don't think so. Just a chapter later, after making this declaration of the kingdom going to come in power, he says, anyone who wants to be great among you will be your servant. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, says this is the center of the vision of the kingdom. Whoever wants to be great will be your servant. So Jesus would stand not just as an, uh, an illustration but as the inaugurator of this kingdom come in power. He said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The sacrifice of Jesus wasn't just a display of his character, though it absolutely was. It's bedrock truth that this is who Jesus was. He came as a servant, but it's also the inaugurating event of his kingdom come in power. It's an upside down kingdom that we've been invited to be a part of. This is our guidepost. This is what we look toward. Jesus used his power, the power of eternity, to care for those and invite in those who didn't have any power, us. Jesus engaged in the relentless pursuit of neighboring because he couldn't imagine us being left outside. And he used his power to invite us into a new neighborhood, one that we absolutely didn't belong being in. Paul says in Romans, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He brought you in. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the new neighborhood we've been invited into. We haven't earned access into that. Jesus just opened the gate for us. It was a gift because Jesus just couldn't imagine leaving us outside. And Paul says the church at its best lives like that's true and displays that that's true. At its best, the, the, the church brings to life the righteousness of God, the rightness of God, the invitation of God. The church brings that to life. 
And if the church brings to life the rightness of God, then it does so the exact same way Jesus did, by serving others. And the place where this all comes to life is where we work, where we live, at our kitchen table, where we take our kids to soccer, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our community. So the invitation remains. Let's start with starting. And if we do, if we're willing to serve others, I think we'll get a glimpse, an actual glimpse, not for some time later, not a deposit in an account we'll never see. I think we'll get an actual tangible glimpse of peace here on earth. Maybe not the fullness of it, but certainly a little glimpse at that, of that kingdom and power. And, and maybe, just maybe, if we're willing to serve others, both because they need it and because we need it. If we're willing to do that, maybe just maybe someday someone will say that person was a good neighbor. I hope people say that about us. So let's start with starting. Let's pray. God, thanks for uh, the, the truth of your word and the challenge of your word. Thank you that why? While we deserve to be outside because we're not all right, you unlock the key to a neighborhood we don't belong in, and you said, come on in. I can't imagine you being left outside. I pray that as we serve this week and as we consider using some of our time that we've been gifted with to care for those in need that are hurting in our community, I pray that we would have that picture clear in our mind. But it's about being a good neighbor. It's about seeing people as people and not letting them feel alone and not letting them feel left out and not letting them feel outside. Maybe, God, as we serve this week, when people see that they matter to us, maybe they'll dare to dream that they matter to you, the God of the universe who is good and loving and true. I pray that it would be so. And I pray that it would start with starting. In Jesus' name, amen.